is actually making me a bit sad and also relieved because I found uh, this to be particularly challenging for me as I tackled a lot of these scriptures and then my conversations with many of you. I think it's been challenging to you as well. And that was kind of one of those like the intent for it to be challenging, but then when you actually get challenged, it's not always fun. And so uh, it's kind of nice that it's over, but also a little bittersweet because it's, uh, it's been really, really good for me personally in my own faith to wrestle with some of these texts. I wanted to start uh, this Sunday with something that um, we, we did to kick off this sermon series, and that is we had these little Starbucks cards, these little $5 Starbucks cards, and I was looking for uh, any, any stories that you might have. If you remember, we passed some of these out and, and said, you know, find somebody. The first, the first series in this was, do you really see people? You remember the story of this woman coming in, Jesus having dinner with the Pharisees, and she's crying and making this huge scene, and Jesus turns to her and asks this Pharisee, do you see her? Do you see her? And it's, it's obvious at that point. Of course, they all see her. She's making a scene. They're all really concerned about what's going on here. And Jesus is asking at a deeper level, do you really see her? Are you seeing her as a human being, an individual created in God's image, worthy of love and respect? Are you seeing her? And so I asked, uh, our worship arts team kind of came up with this idea of uh, maybe finding somebody that you see, but you don't really see or take the time to have an interaction with, but it's somebody that you see every day and uh, maybe present them with one of these just to bless their day or to, to have maybe a random conversation with somebody. And so I'm eager. Uh, I've got some stories through emails. That, that's been wonderful. Um, is there anybody, though, that, because I know of one person, but I want to give another chance. Is there somebody else who has a story they'd love to share? Anybody? Anybody? Bueller? Yes. Hey, this is wonderful. I'm coming to you. Here I come. I want, I want to thank the Lord for, uh, you know, once, uh, anyway, the first. We went to the bank and, we, and we're coming out of the uh, place where I live because I'm helping Mildred. Uh -huh. And uh, we, were, we were surprised, but we were hit in the back of our car. And by the grace of God, we weren't in the front. We mm. were in the front. You'd have memorial service, right? Oh, no. But uh, Mildred and I were not hurt, but we want to thank the Lord for the church. And, mm. and we miss being here, you know. And uh, we want to thank Peter and his wife. And oh, son. man. They, they came and got us. Oh, so, my goodness. I, That's so wonderful. Anyway, thank the Lord that we're okay. Amen. We thank the Lord you're okay, too. Hallelujah. That's great. That's great. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Anybody else a story to tell? Or I'm going straight for Terry Forlisi, but here we go. Well, this is nothing to do with the Starbucks card. That's okay. Oh, welcome, eh?
Welcome to beautiful Southern California. <laughs> That's wonderful. That's awesome. That's so cool. Yeah. Very cool. That's nice. That's very cool. Very cool. We'll welcome Canadians. That's, you're welcome here. Our, our brothers and sisters to the north. Anybody else? Any stories to tell? Here we go. Do a couple more here. Oh, no, no, no. We all think everybody can hear us. That's awesome. Thank you. <laughs> so cool. I feel like I'm playing game show host here. Any, anybody else? Come on down. <laughs> A new car. No, uh, not today. All right, Terry Forlisi, where are you at? There she is. Say, so you said you had a story, so I'm going to, you're not getting off the hook just because others shared. That's another sermon series. Yeah. Then I went back after I bought the car. I went back and said, "I thought, here I have that thing. I have 
I was thinking I needed to slide another one in your pocket as you <laughs> Thanks, Terry. <laughs> That's awesome. So uh, so I have uh, originally when we did this, we bought like fifty of these, and so I still have a stack. And so after church, if you would love to, you know, have a great story or, or just see where God leads you, um, come find me. Come find me. So I'll have this, these with me and uh, love to hear more stories. It's so wonderful to hear. Uh, we don't get a chance to do that all the time, to hear how God is moving in each other's lives. This, this kind of format that we've done church for, for centuries now doesn't really lend itself to hearing each other's stories. Hopefully you're doing that in grow groups if you're participating in a group, but uh, it's just a great opportunity for us from, from time to time to hear from each other. And so thank you uh, for those who shared and welcome Welcomes uh, guests, visitors from Canada. I love it. So uh, here we go. Let's jump into to this last sermon. And this, I got to tell you, this is one that, um, can I say I still don't know how I want to close it? Is that okay? And it's not because I didn't work on it this week. I worked on it a lot. And I stood right here and practiced it a lot. And I just didn't like how I ended it. So I guess we'll see how it ends. I've got some ideas, but I don't, I don't know. We'll see where this leads. We're in Mark chapter 2. And I think, again, part of it, my wrestling was just, how do, you, how do you wrap this up? What is the call? What is the challenge to wrap all this up? That's what I was really wrestling with. Mark chapter 2, and uh, it's interesting in this one, if you have a red-letter Bible like I'm holding in previous weeks, these stories of Jesus are just, it's usually Jesus talking, Jesus teaching, and we can see all these interactions his words are few in this one. So short and to the point, and we have Jesus saying something that's very much, uh, I always pay attention to these times in the Bible when Jesus say, says, this is why I've come. He makes it very clear. And this is one of those times where he says one of the reasons he came. And so we're going to get there, Mark chapter 2, 13 through 17, this short story of calling Levi, the tax collector. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. And Levi got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners. On hearing this, Jesus said to them, It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Short and sweet. Easy to follow. What is going on in this story? Jesus is again eating with the wrong people. He's getting scolded by the church people of the day. The church people, the church leaders, people like me, don't like 
what Jesus is doing. I found myself with that in mind really wrestling with this question. When Jesus says, I have not come to call the righteous but sinners, I found myself asking, who am I in those two categories? When it comes to those two categories, I have not come to call the righteous. Am I the righteous? But I've come to call sinners. Am I the sinners Jesus came to call? And I found myself really wrestling with that because as I've shared with all of you before, as I shared with all of you before, I find myself all too often identifying with these Pharisees. I find myself identifying with them. They're trying to protect Religion, they're trying to protect their way of understanding God. They're trying their best. I'm going to get to this a little bit later. They're they're doing their best. We we paint them with these very negative strokes, and I do it all the time. It's easy. It's easy to say, Pharisees, they're terrible people. But really, they were trying to protect their way of understanding God, their way of following God. And so I find myself as somebody who's trying to also understand what it means to follow God, help others understand what it means to follow God, I identify a lot with these Pharisees. But before we get too deep in the weeds on where do we find ourselves in this story, who do we find ourselves identifying with, I want to just kind of go through the text, walk through some of the finer points of the text to help us understand a little bit uh, some things that maybe aren't necessarily clear or why this is such a big deal. First off, we have, we have to understand that Mark's gospel is just fast and furious. Mark wants to get you to the point as fast as he possibly can. So there's no Christmas story in Mark. There's no birth story in Mark. It's just that if you, if you flip over to Mark chapter 1, it says the beginning of the good news about Jesus. And John the Baptist is already there and he's telling people to repent And by verse 9 of chapter 1 of Mark, Jesus is being baptized by John the Baptist. By verse 12, Jesus is already driven out into the wilderness. It takes the other Gospels three or four chapters to get there. Mark's like, I don't have time for that. Let's go. i got a story to tell you about Jesus. It's fast. It's furious. Verse 15, you have Jesus saying, the time has come. It's already come. 15 verses in, he doesn't have time for anything else. The time has come. The kingdom has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Mark wants Jesus to move and to move fast. He goes from there. They're walking on the lake. He starts calling disciples. He doesn't have time for anything else. He goes to the next thing. Oh, two of his disciples have a mom who's sick. we got to heal her. Now we got to cast out some demons. And he just is going and it's exhausting. But this is Mark's gospel. It's just picking up steam. In chapter 2, right before this, we have Jesus. uh, He's in a room and the crowds have started to follow him already by chapter 2. So that he's in a room trying to preach the good news. The kingdom of God is here. Repent. Believe the good news. And he's in this room and it's so crowded in that these guys, you know this story? These guys have a paralytic friend. There it is. There's the answer. That's Siri helping me out. These guys want to get to Jesus so bad, they go up on the roof of this house and they dig a hole in the roof and lower lower their friend down to meet Jesus. That's how desperate people are. By chapter 2, the word has spread. Everybody wants to get to Jesus. And so Jesus is just walking out by the lake. 
This large crowd is with him. He's teaching them again. And he stops and sees, we're right back to the seeing thing, he sees Levi, the tax collector. Now, in this culture, it's possible that everybody there is expecting Jesus, when he stops and sees this tax collector, to maybe ball this guy out. How dare you, you sellout? Levi, his name is Levi. The Levites are the priestly, the priestly class. He's named maybe after his, his grandfather's great-grandfather's great-great-grandfather and so on. He, he has this name that represents that he is a Jew. And, and, and they might be expecting that Jesus is going to look at him and say, How dare you sell out to, to these Roman oppressors? How dare you? And instead Jesus says, Follow me. Whoa. What? is going on there. Certainly, if you were in the crowd right there, you would have been shocked. Because this guy, he, again, he, he, anytime you see the tax collector, you, re, you remember whether you've put it off out of your mind, out of, out of sight, out of mind, that Rome is really in charge. Every time you see these people, you are reminded, we are not in control here. We are not in charge. We don't get to do the things we want to do. We don't even really necessarily get to worship the way we want to worship. We are under the rule of someone else. And this guy, Levi, represents that. And Jesus, this prophet, who's doing these amazing miracles, even looking, at, and it's fascinating, if you, if you look back in chapter 2, when he heals this paralytic man, he says the words, your sins are forgiven. And this really, people's attention perk up. They perk up at this. It's not just you're healed, your sins are forgiven. And the phrase they use is, who, uh, who can forgive sins but God alone? Which implies in that sense, maybe, there's people wrestling with the idea, maybe this is the Messiah. Maybe this is God come to save us. Maybe. But then immediately he starts doing crazy things like calling tax collectors to follow him. What is that about? And it doesn't just stop at, hey, Levi, follow me. He says, Levi, let's go to your house. And they're having dinner, much like uh, the Zacchaeus story, which we're going to get to Zacchaeus, the tax collector, during Lent. Really excited to tackle that story. But in this one, Jesus goes, and I love, I, I don't know if I love it. It fascinates me, I'll say that. When the gospel writers say Jesus is having dinner with tax collectors and other sinners, what does that even mean? Who are these people? How terrible are these people that they're just called like, those are sinners. And everybody's cool with that. Yeah, those guys, sinners. Would you be cool with that? Hey, I want to have you over to my house, you sinners. You'd be like, uh, that's how, you're, that's, that's how you relate to us? But it fascinates me and it starts my mind to go on to this kind of thing of who are these guys? Are they just more kind of political scumbags? Tax collectors? All this, this like just lumped in category? Are they people who everybody knows they frequent the brothels of their town? Who are these people? And I realize that as my mind goes down that road and I start saying like, who are these people? How bad are they really? That that's an awfully Pharisaic way of reading this text. It's awfully pharisaic to start making judgments of what does it mean to be a sinner. Just how bad are these dudes? These terrible tax collectors, they're just terrible. Not 
like me, pastor, professional Christian, these are terrible people, and I realize quickly that my attitude is just like that of the Pharisees, the teachers of the law. Why is he eating with people like this? What is he doing? What is he thinking? You want to kill your religious movement in chapter 2? People are like, man, maybe he's God. This is awesome. He's healing everybody, and now he's hanging out with these people. What is going on? And it's just this attitude, this very attitude that I felt creeping into my own soul as I was reading the text. This is the attitude that the Pharisees have as well and that leads Jesus to say, because the Pharisees say, what is he doing eating with them? People not like us. And Jesus says these famous words. It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And here it is. This, is. this is Jesus. This is one of these alarming, jarring phrases. Kind of like we saw last week. I talked to some of you who were like, I didn't like it that Jesus said He came for the lost sheep of Israel. That's what Jesus said. It's jarring. It was a jarring statement. It's, it has this exclusivity that we don't like. Didn't Jesus come for everybody? And again, Jesus looking at these people, these people that I identify with and saying, I didn't come for people who think they have it all together. I didn't come for you who think you don't need any help. Who think you can be saved, you can follow God all on your own, by your own merit, your own hard work, your own rule following. I didn't come for you. I came for those who realize they're at the end of their rope. They've tried everything and it's not working. For those who can admit their shortcomings, their limitations, their inability to save themselves through right thinking, right beliefs, even right doing. And so there's a shock to the system of the Pharisees. There's a shock to their system. And and this is where already they're starting to butt heads with Jesus Because they have created a system where righteousness, right thinking, right doing, a right following of God's law as defined by them, their tradition, this is how you follow God. They've they've created the system and Jesus is saying, it's not good enough. It's a shock to their system. I mean, put yourselves in the shoes of the Pharisees for a moment. I found when I asked myself that question, it wasn't hard for me to do. I could put myself in their shoes pretty easily. I mean, they're doing their best to follow God. They're doing their best to help others follow God. They believe they're obeying God's laws. I mean, the laws they're asking people to obey, they're not things they made up. They're looking at the Bible. They're looking at the Old Testament and they're saying, here are these laws passed down from God to us and we want to help people follow these laws. They're they're thinking they're doing their best. They think they're actually being biblical. This phrase gets thrown around a lot in the evangelical tradition. They are being biblical. Teaching people to be biblical. And this guy comes along who starts just flat out breaking the rules. He's a law, he's a rule breaker, and he's doing it in the name of God. 
this would really throw you for a loop. This is why this isn't going over well for them. Again, if you're in their shoes, you can see why somebody like Jesus, who now is gathered, he's got a following. So, so your, your power in the community is a little bit at question here. He's got a following. He's, he's popular. Everybody wants to know what he's going to do next. They're following him from place to place. He's doing these incredible things in the name of God. And you're going, I don't get it though. I don't get it because he's clearly, he's breaking easily rules that are just easy to define. He's breaking them. He's breaking them. And so it's a point, this is where, where I get to this point in the text where I had to ask myself, do I identify more with that category of people called the righteous or more with that category of people who are like, you know what, sinner, I'm a tax collector, nobody likes me, that's been made very clear. Or that category of these people that, again, just the blanket statement, sinners, that's who they are. What do I identify with? Am I the righteous or the sinner? And how, how do you even start to have that conversation? Which is why this got really hard for me to figure out. What do you, how, how do you wrap this up and give this to people? And I think it's even harder to answer that question because today I would argue we don't even know how to define sinner. We don't even know. I mean, I mean there's probably those of us in this room that we could go down and you could say, well, I, I know and then you could talk to a young person who would say, like, sin, sinner? What does that even mean? I'll never forget having a conversation with a group of students. And I was trying to kind of outline for them what I thought, you know, here, again, maybe a Pharisaic way of doing it. Like, we need some boundaries. We need to create a fence that you can live within to be a Christ follower. And they kind of started asking me these questions. I was like, oh, okay, we need to go back a step and talk about sin, this concept that we have in the church called sin. And it wasn't computing. They weren't getting it. And so I was trying to use other language. I said, you know, things that, that we do against, that, that, that God has a plan, and he has, he has a way for us to live, and when we break, break that, we, don't, we miss the mark, we feel some regret, some guilt, and this hand shot up. I was like, okay, yeah, what do you want to say? Ah, we're not supposed to have regrets. Okay, that's an interesting thing. Yeah, 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 we're young, you know. You're supposed to just live life. You're supposed to live it up. You can have regrets later. You can feel guilt later. Not now. We're young. So you can, how do you talk about, so, so, so a whole category now, a whole, a whole generation growing up in our culture that says, like, sin, leave me alone with that. Leave me alone with, I'm not a sinner. I'm pretty nice, generically speaking. I'm a pretty nice person. I think God would be like okay with 90% of what I do. That's a pretty good grade. That's, that's okay. What's the problem? I'm not hurting other people. I remember another student I was working with who, who started uh, heavily abusing marijuana. And it was this kind of attitude of like, what's the big deal? I'm not hurting you. I'm not hurting anybody else. I'm just choosing. The, what, what's the problem? As his family crumbled apart around him, as he started stealing money from his family. What's, I'm not hurting anybody. It's all good. How, how do you tell that person, like, you're a sinner? What? That doesn't compute. And, and then what we've done in the church, we've done a couple things. We have this other, like, well, we're all sinners. Everybody's a sinner. 
Something I think the Pharisees could have agreed with, this argument, like, oh, we're just all generically sinners. And that just leads you to this, like, normalizing everything, right? Where we have these phrases where we say something like, um, all sins are equal. Maybe? I mean, do we really think, like, those who, who, who did, who were behind the scenes of, of something like the Holocaust, that's the same as, like, tell a little lie? That's the same. Ooh. Starts to get you in some shaky ground there where you're like, murdering is the same as, you know, a family who's hungry and starving and they steal a loaf of bread. That's the same. No, and so we have this way of where we just kind of go like, we just relativize sin. Eh. And then we've done this other thing in the church. And this is, a, this is what I grew up with. And I, I think maybe this is where I, I, I see the Pharisee in me. I grew up in this, this kind of evangelical culture, and maybe you can identify with it if you grew up in it too. And this is really where, where I say, like, we were trying to be biblical just like they are trying to be biblical. And it's this way where we, we create a system where we say, like, Jesus' sacrifice was great and wonderful, and we, we teach about it in kind of a moral, legal way. Jesus gives us an image of healing and a doctor, and we talk about it uh, from a, a moralistic legalism as if Jesus is a lawyer? Stay with me on this. I think you'll identify with this. Where we say, like, you have broken laws. There's laws clearly defined. You have broken them. And so eventually you're going to have to stand before the judge. And the judge is going to look at you and he's going to see, did you do enough good stuff? Well, we can't ever do enough good stuff. So Jesus comes. He takes our place on the cross. He goes to the executioner's chair for us. This is a biblical understanding of the gospel, but I don't think it's the full understanding of it. Because I think what happens, this is all, all true, and I'm not, no judgment. This is the gospel I learned as a kid, what it means to be a sinner, what happens is we get to a place, I think, at least I heard this in uh, my own head and in the lives of a lot of students I worked with, we get to a place where we imagine standing before that judge, we've been told that Jesus took your place, everything's good, all your sins are forgiven, but you know what, you're going to have to answer to him one day. And you're right back at, oh my gosh, did I do enough? Did I do enough? Did I believe the right things? Oh my goodness, can I trust Jesus? Is Jesus the judge a different guy than Jesus on the cross? And you start to get, at least for me, my brain goes into a pretzel. Because I start to realize in that that I'm kind of right back to where the Pharisees were. Hey, we know the rules, got to stay within the rules. They're clearly defined. If you stay within these rules, then you're good. You start to get outside these rules... Judgment might not be a good day for you. We're right back with the Pharisees. What's the alternative? The alternative, I think, is embracing this image that Jesus has given us here in Mark chapter 2. Because Jesus is saying, you don't need a lawyer. You need a doctor. Your, your, your sin is a sickness and you need a doctor to heal you. And so the, the, the Orthodox Church and many others in the history of the church really embraced this image and talked about the church as a hospital for sinners. I love that image. It's a hospital for sinners. This is a place where I hope when you come Sunday after Sunday, you feel healing. Not judgment, not, yeah, you didn't add, you, you actually broke a ton of rules this week. Go back out there and try to fix it. 
but that you feel healing in this place. And healing happens when we admit our sins. It's not about saying sin doesn't exist, it's just a peace, love, and happiness kind of thing. Healing happens when we can admit that we are sick, we are in need of a doctor, we can't heal ourselves, we can't do it. We've tried, we've tried everything, and we can't do it. And we need healing to come from outside of ourselves. This, I believe, is how we really embrace this text, is we, as a church, embrace the idea of the church as a hospital. I read a lot on that, on that concept, and this is where I, I kind of, I didn't know how to end this, because I don't, I, what does that look like? I don't think we've done enough work on that in the evangelical tradition. We've largely seen the church as a courtroom. We, I've, I've used that language myself. I heard that language preached to me as a kid. And so embracing this idea, which is right there in the Bible, saying Jesus is the doctor. He wants to heal you. He wants to heal us. What does that look like? I read somewhere, uh, somebody said that too often the church uh, is not a hospital, but it's not even seen as a courtroom, but as a hotel. Because at a hotel, you get what you want. You find the, the, you know, how many stars does it have? Is the elevator music going to be what I like? Is the lobby going to be a, a chill place to hang out? Does it have all the amenities, the pool, the hot stuff? That was an interesting thing. And maybe even we're not a court of law anymore, but we're looking for a hotel. Where we can hang out and get what we want. But a hospital, back to that idea of a hospital. I was thinking of the Apostle Paul's words, and I, just to be honest, I'm kind of, as I, as I wrap this up, kind of, this is the part I was having trouble with, so just bear with me. Stay with me if you can, <laughs> if you can follow my own bleeding out of my brain thoughts here. Paul said this, 1 Timothy verse one, or chapter 1, verse 15. It says, here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Seems like what he's saying here in Mark chapter 2. Jesus came to save sinners, and then Paul adds this, of whom I am the worst. I thought about that a lot, and I thought about what would that look like for me, for us to embrace that idea that when we walk into a room, see, I think that when we walk into a room, the Pharisaic way of think, seeing things is kind of observing the crowd. It, it, it could be a church. It could be anywhere you go. And I think if we're honest, a lot of us observe a crowd and we kind of go like, oh, that person. We start diagnosing people. Ooh, that's somebody I maybe want to stay away from. Ooh, not so sure about that person. Ooh, that conversation I need to get out of. Instead of walking to a room and saying, like, I am the most messed up person here. I think it changes the way we see each other, the way we interact with the world when we admit when we admit that, that we are the worst of sinners, this, is, I think, is what Paul did so amazingly in the Bible. Paul, who wrote so much of our Bible, he's looked at as this spiritual hero, this Christian hero. He probably did no wrong, and he's the one saying, I am the worst sinner. I think Paul understood what it looks like to say, I am in need of healing constantly. You have Paul, I love in Romans 7, Paul wrestling with, I want to do the good things because sometimes we think that maybe the answer to this sin problem is working harder at it. Just don't do bad things. And Paul saying, gosh, I've tried that. 
I've tried that. He says in Romans 7, what I want to do, I don't do. What I hate, I do. I don't know what that is, but there's something living inside me that needs to be healed, he's saying. There's something inside me. Who can save me? And he says, praise God for Christ, the healer. I guess what I wanted to do was close with talking about the cure. If the church is a hospital, And Jesus says he came to save sinners. And part of understanding this text is to realize that when we talk about this language of people who are not like me, there's nobody not like me. We're all the same. We're all all desperately in need of healing, in need of saving. That's not going to come from us, from our own hard work, but that comes from submitting ourselves to Christ One Orthodox priest, he said, we need a diagnosis and a willingness to submit ourselves to the cure. We need a doctor for our souls, not a lawyer for our morality. I would ask that with me, you kind of think, what does it look like to come here and receive treatment? That's what I find myself wrestling with at the end of this sermon series is that we've, we've talked a lot about going out and going out and going out to our community and to our world and seeing people. What does it look like to take that a next step and say, how do we offer healing to people? What does that look like to bring people to a place where they would receive healing, not judgment, healing, treatment, a cure, and, and, and to invite people to understand that it's not a come in here and it's magic and you're done. But to be here long enough, to, to be, be in relationship long enough, I do think that the church at its best has a cure. It's Jesus, it's not us, but it's Christ in us, bringing other people into our lives, I think worship is part of the cure where we take our eyes off ourselves and turn our eyes to God. I think being in Christ-centered community is part of the cure where you allow people to come into your lives who can say, I think you're getting sick. I think you're getting sick. Stop doing that, those things. Let's walk with each other long enough to where we can see healing happen in our brothers and sisters. The cure is, is found in beginning This is this place where we can all admit that, as one author put it, we have an an active inclination to break stuff. I thought that was an interesting way of defining sin. We all have an active inclination within us to break stuff, including relationships, promises, people we say we care about. We have the ability to break stuff. Can we admit that? I think the alternative where we start to these categories of righteous and sinner is being in a place maybe like most of us are at when it comes to our health. I'm not sick enough to really need a doctor. I'll just keep doing what I'm doing and see how that goes. That's the alternative. I think I can fix this on my own. And we find 